We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. I've known Bob Baxley for a long time as a colleague, advisor, and friend. I invited him to join me on the podcast because I want to explore why design is such an important, if sometimes overlooked element of the best subscriptions. Bob is a thinking person's designer with the book and the teaching credentials to prove it. He's also an experienced practitioner who has been in the trenches of software design at a wide range of organizations, including Apple, Yahoo, Pinterest, and now ThoughtSpot, where he's SVP of design. Many companies don't think through the member journey, what brings subscribers in the first time, and more importantly, what keeps bringing them back. And yet it's critical to go beyond the headline benefits that drive acquisitions and invest in engagement and retention benefits as well. Today, we're going to talk about how to rethink product design when the customer can cancel at any time and the product has to market itself. Welcome to the show, Bob. Hey, Robbie. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. It's a real privilege to get to hang out with you today and share some ideas and insights from my career in design. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. I I thought we could start with a little bit of background about what drew you to the world of product design, especially software, user experience design. What led you down this path? Well, I saw my first computer when I was about 11 years old. It was a Heathkit computer over at my friend Glenn, Glenn Wilkinson's house. And I remember vividly, <laughs> this would have been about 1976, maybe. And from that very day, I just fell in love with computing. And I don't know where that came from. And then I was kind of off to the races. And I suppose I should have gone into software engineering, but for some strange reason, my parents didn't think that was a great career path. So I graduated high school in 81. I went to the University of Texas, ended up studying film because I thought I wanted to make movies. While I was there, I also decided to get a second degree. So I got a second one in liberal arts and history in in particular. And then actually after undergrad, went and studied music for a little bit. And around that time, I got a Mac, which was just so exciting and new and different. And I just randomly, fortuitously bumped into a guy who was a budding graphic designer. And we ended up starting a desktop publishing company together uh, Together back in the day when you still called it desktop publishing. And so around 87, 88, I was doing kind of low-end graphic design, but I was learning about the tenets of graphic design. I was also intensely using software to the point that it became like a video game. And I think through that experience, I developed a real sense of how software is constructed and how humans communicate with computers through the user interface layer. Fast forward a couple of years, I decide that I didn't really want to continue in in the desktop publishing thing. I sat down, literally one day, I sat down with an issue of Macworld Magazine, and I sent a resume and a cover letter to all 107 advertisers in that particular issue. Only two of those 107 resumes came back. So I say this to everybody out there looking for your first job, you got to send out a lot of resumes and cover letters. I sent out 107 and I heard back from two people, one of which then fortuitously turned into a job with Claris Corporation, which was a subsidiary of Apple. And that's how I got into software design. 
and ended up moving to California in 1990 to become the first designer for a product called Clarisworks. And it's kind of started my career in Silicon Valley. And you know, when I started, there really wasn't much of a field called UI design. People kind of stumbled their way into it, often refugees from different types of professions, which is strangely actually kind of how most of the design leaders today still are. Mostly when you actually talk to people that are leading different design teams, they're generally refugees from other fields. Yeah, it's fascinating to me that you're self-taught. It sounds like you developed your own framework and your own philosophy for software design. Were there mentors that were guiding you along the way? Or do you feel like a lot of it was through your own trial and error and experience with the products that were available at that time? No, I'm about as old as you can get and still say you design software on microcomputers. I mean, there's, there's not really a generation ahead of me. I only know two or three people who are older than me at all that are still in the profession. So, I mean, there really wasn't any other choice but to be self-taught. You know, to go back to my education, I do think that the intersection of filmmaking and history ended up being incredibly applicable to software design. History is sort of the practice of being able to entertain multiple points of view and synthesize an original viewpoint through them, which is a lot of understanding feedback and what you're trying to accomplish and making trade-offs and stuff. And then filmmaking is interesting because it's a hyper-collaborative, large-scale creative artifact that ultimately needs to look like it came from a single mind. And that's really the reality of developing software today or video games for that matter. You know, you have to have some way of bringing a lot of people together to create something that looks like it came from a single mind. And so, again, I think the intersection of those two things ended up serving well. Plus, I just kind of the way my brain is structured, I do think in systems and I look for patterns and commonalities, which is very much sort of an engineering mindset. And I think that has just ended up serving me well as a UI designer. I did kind of stumble into it, but I have to have to say, like, I'm just like truly just lucky as hell because I just found something that my brain is particularly well tuned to. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about the impact of both history and film on your work as a designer. How, you know, we worked together back in the day, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you really do take a very analytical and philosophical approach to your work. And and I was thinking about what you said about film being created by a lot of different people, but it has to look like it came from one mind. And you said like video games or like software. I've thought about video games in that context, but I've never really thought about software products, utility products that we use every day as having to look like or feel like they came from one mind, but having been created by many minds. I came to realize like, that's how I think of software. I don't think of myself as building a utility product. I'm not building a tool for business. I work in a medium and I work in the medium I work in is software. I think a lot of times the designers would love to do better work, but the management of the company just doesn't value design. They decide not to invest in it. So when I look at major companies and I think their products aren't what they should be, it would be easy to attack the designers, but I honestly don't think that's where it is. It, it lies with the executives and the people who said, no, this is good enough. Let's ship it. And the companies I've worked for, I've been fortunate to work at places like Apple and Pinterest and now ThoughtSpot, where we had an executive team that was willing to say, no, we're not going to ship it till it's good enough. But that's not the case in many, many companies. Can you walk me through your experience? Let's start with Apple and kind of what you learned there and what you noticed about the way they valued design and what design meant for a company making that kind of product, hardware and then, and then later software. Yeah. So I should point out that one, I've been fortunate to work for design-driven companies. And two, I've been very purposeful in working for design-driven companies. 
It's one of the benefits of being in Silicon Valley is, and being in a profession that for which there's a phenomenal demand and not enough supply. I've been fortunate enough to get to pick places I wanted to go work. Note to our children, product design is a very good field to go into right now. There's real demand. Oh, I have a whole talk about this that I started giving in 2014 about how design was, well, for one, it is the defining care. It is the major constraint on the output of tech companies in the same way that script writing is the main constraint on Hollywood. Design is the main constraint on tech companies. And it's a profession that very few people are aware of. It pays incredibly well. It's not art. You know, I don't want to dig into the whole, it's artistry. It's not art. It's not art. It's still design. Probably Craft, closer maybe. to- Craft. craft for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, closer to architecture than like arts and crafts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's definitely applied a level art. of taste, which we could talk about. Applied art's a great way to think about it. And is whenever I give this talk at high schools, the parents and the students always freak out when I show the the median income for designers because it's at or higher than engineers. And they just can't believe that designers make as much or more than engineers, but they do. That's a whole other thing we could talk about. So, <laughs> so you were asking me about Apple. So I was at Yahoo. And again, sort of the history major in me always keeps my eye open for places where I feel like I'm going to get to be part of or witness history. And I was at Yahoo. It was probably around 2005, 2006. The iPod Nano was the new hot product at Apple. The phone was still a year and a half, two years away. It was clear that Apple was kind of bouncing back, but still they were kind of this uncertain thing. And I remember having a conversation with my wife, who's a huge Disney fan, and we were talking about, she called them the original nine or the old nine or the nine old men, I think was it, which was the animators that worked with Walt Disney back in the day. And I just kind of got fixated on this idea of like, wow, what would it be like to work with Steve Jobs, like to just work in an organization where he was running the show. And I just felt that that would be historic. And I knew that if I went to Apple, I would learn a lot about design and I would get much better as a designer. And so I was fortunate to get to go lead the team that worked on the online store. I'm super lucky. I got to present to Steve a couple of times. So I you know, kind of got to interact with him directly and experience that. And it just turned out, again, super lucky. I was at the company in really one of the periods of business history anywhere in the world from you know being at Apple from 2006 until about 2014. It was... So I like to say I joined about six months before the phone came out and I left around the time the iPhone 6 was released. And so it was really just that amazing trajectory. So yeah, it was phenomenal. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So from a design perspective, I mean, maybe we should should take a minute and just talk about what does it mean to be a designer at Apple? Like what was your job there and what kinds of questions were you thinking about in that role? It was very taste and judgment and opinion driven. And I don't mean opinion, random opinion. I mean, it, it, you still had to justify it with taste. And the company had phenomenal taste. The executive staff at Apple, and it's true to this day, they have incredible taste in software. And that's why so many of the products that come out of there are what they are. I don't think people really understand the level of editing and filtering that happens as you go through the director, VP, SVP, CEO ranks. So my job was, I, I again, I led a tiny team that worked on the online store. The online store, even then, was doing billions and billions of dollars in revenue. And there was only six of us that were designing the store. I mean, any other company would have had an army of designers working on it. Now, we didn't do all the marketing touts. We did the infrastructure of the store, but how the, the store was structured, what the information architecture was, what the tabs looked like, how you navigated the store, how you would you know, select different product variants, sizes, colors, add things to the cart, checkout, online self-service, all that sort of stuff. And frankly, at the time, we, d- we didn't have a traditional product management organization that was telling us kind of what to do and giving us requirements. 
For example, when we did the Apple Store app, the first iPhone app for the both the online store and retail, literally the entire requirement was the woman who ran the online store at the time just pulled me aside on a Friday and said, you need to start work on an app. And I was like, okay, well, is there more to it than that? And she was like, no, no, I just don't want to be here in six months and not have an app. And I was like, okay, well, I guess we'll just get started then. <laughs> you know? and, wow. and so we did. I went home over the weekend and I sort of started looking at apps and I realized that all great apps had five items in the bottom part of the app, what we call the tray, those five icons at the bottom of an iPhone app. I looked at a bunch of apps and I was like, well, they're almost all nouns. So basically we have five nouns. And if we can figure out what those five nouns are, that'll form the basis of the product and we can start building on top of that. And that's exactly what we did. And then at Apple... What were the five nouns? If I could, They've changed. If I can remember them now, I believe it was featured products, stores, cart, and search, if I recall. <laughs> and if you look at a lot of Apple apps today, you'll still see it's, it's mostly nouns along the tray. And look, that's a really fundamental information architecture challenge, right? And, and that one was, was complicated because it was trying to bring together the online store and Apple retail. And so trying to get those two organizations to come together and agree was a little tricky. But you know, again, simple solution. I, I, I just sort of brainstormed on my own, what are all the nouns that we could have? And there was only about 10 of them. And then I called a meeting and we got the decision makers in the room and I put five of them up on a whiteboard with magnets in a certain order. And then we talked for about half an hour. We tried some different ones. I moved stuff around. And literally within half an hour, we were like, okay, well, that's the set. And that was it. <laughs> you know, that was the set. And then we moved on. <laughs> you know, and we, and we just kept going. There was no, let's go ask users. There was no, let's run some A-B tests. There was none of like, let's have a focus group. It was just like, I don't know, that's what we're going to do. And so that's what we went and did. And I think for a lot of software companies that feel super risky, but if you're going to say it's super risky, then I guess you might as well say all of Hollywood is super risky. All of novels are super risky. All of video games are super risky. I mean, you, you know, you have to, these things involve creative choices. And the way you de-risk creative choice is you look at it over and over and over again. And you keep asking yourself, is there any way I can see to make this better? That's fascinating because a lot of people I've had as guests talking about subscriptions and designing and how to make subscription products successful go straight to data, go straight to A-B test, straight to ask customers. And you're bringing up this idea of taste, this idea of pushing yourself to say, can I make this better? It's a very different approach to what I've heard other people talk about. And it's really interesting to me that you're thinking this way. And I know what your the quality of the output is of the companies where you work. So I'm wondering what's kind of the disconnect between what you're talking about and I think the way a lot of organizations think about creating new products and services. Yes, that's true. What you just said, <laughs> I've pointed that out many times. There's a huge disconnect. If you just look at Apple, virtually every company in tech looks at Apple and admires the design. And then they do a completely different process than what Apple does and expects to get Apple type results. And it's just, you will never get there following a metrics-based data, talk to customers approach. It's just, you're never going to get there. So yeah, what I'm advocating for is a very different philosophy, but I think the only one that's really been proven in the real world, it does come down to individual taste. And taste is not, it's not random unsupported opinion. Taste is the application of thinking hard about a particular medium for a long period of time and developing a whole big collection of reference points and understanding what is good and bad and why. 
we recognize that people have taste in music and people have taste in art. You can have taste in software as well, but you have to see it as a medium and you have to think of it as a medium. So like when I talk to younger designers, I'm always like, you know, what are some of your favorite apps? And nine times out of 10, they can't name anything. They'll name things that they use a lot. But when I ask why it's your favorite, they can't really say. If I was to go talk to a young saxophone player and I was to say, what are some of your favorite albums? They would rattle off 50 jazz albums and they would have a hundred different little riffs and they could tell you what was cool about every one of them. And I think that's a real fundamental shift in how we need to think about design. If you were to ask me some favorite things, I wouldn't necessarily tell you a favorite app, but I could tell you a lot of interesting little touch points in different apps and what made them cool. Can you give me an example of something that, that you think is cool that people might be familiar with? I don't know if they're familiar with it, but the one, the example that I like to use, and if you're not familiar with it, you should check it out. The example I always use is an app called Habitica. So it's the word habit plus ICA, habit, Habitica, and it's the land of Habitica. So, you know, you often hear about gamification and gamification is this idea of kind of taking game type mechanisms and strap them onto the, to the side of an existing product. Habitica is actually a to-do manager and habit tracker, but instead of attaching gamification mechanisms onto those paradigms, the base app is a game. You know, what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop your character. So in my case, it was Bob the procrastinate, you know, and I was, <laughs> and I could choose between being a healer, a mage and a warrior, I think it was. And in order to keep my character healthy day after day and to acquire gold and to then be able to like hatch eggs, which got you all these mythical creatures and stuff. I had to like keep up with my to-do list and I had to keep up with my habits. And as you get further along in the app, you can actually band together with other people on the platform and form teams and you go on quests together. And if you don't get all your stuff done, then the whole team suffers. So you create this accountability loop. Now, not everybody's going to be drawn to a video game or a role-playing game model for, the, for managing their to-do list. But what's novel about it is they flipped the conceptual model around. You know, instead of taking a to-do manager and gamifying it, they took a game and they turned it into a to-do manager. What I love about this and what I'm just thinking about when I, when I think about the companies I work with and, you know, a lot of the products I've been involved with over the years is that there's this element of whoever came up with the idea for Habitica had some kind of inspiration and it was something that was offbeat and something that other people hadn't done. It wasn't taking the five existing productivity apps and saying, how can we improve on this? What's our segment? They said, what is the, I mean, I'm imagining now, but what is the productivity app that I would love or that would be really cool and different and exciting? And I wonder what the world of software would look like if people had a little more freedom to have those kind of, I don't want to say crazy ideas, but to have, you know, Molly, my, my daughter, you know, was talking about the jobs that she loves are the ones that have a spark, a playfulness, a leap of faith in them. And we were talking about different careers and she was saying, I want to do something where that exists. And we were having trouble defining it, but I think it's what you're talking about. Taste or creativity or craftsmanship, but there's something there that I don't know that a lot of product management organizations, design teams have the, let's just say the luxury of tapping into. Well, I definitely don't think it's the luxury. I'm definitely going to take issue with that <laughs> one because I think if all you're doing is following the competition, you're going to fail. I think any organization that can't get comfortable with and boldly exist in a world of original thinking, I think they're dead. They're as good as dead because all they're waiting to do is to be commoditized. And as soon as they get commoditized, it's all about cutting costs. 
and it's just going to be miserable. And it, it goes back to when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 1996. He surveyed the personal computer landscape. It was all Dell and Compaq at the time, so custom-built computers. It's all about the supply chain and how you could just squeeze margins down to nothing. And all these companies are trying to survive on 2 to 5% profits. Now, one of them's gone. One of them went out of bankruptcy and was able to come back, Dell. But like you could see where that whole business model was going. And so Steve, as a business person, said, well, I can either do that and we're dead, or I can engage in original thinking, try to do something new, and I can compete on design. And if we can compete on design, we can get 34% margins on consumer electronics. And he did. (laughs) And they do. It's crazy. They get 34% margins on consumer electronics. And people are committed to Apple. One of the things I talk about with Apple is that this is an example of a company that has a forever transaction with their customers, what I what I talk about all the time, without even needing subscription pricing, right? You don't need to lock in your customers by saying you have to pay every month. We have a contractual relationship. People just say, and I'm sure you've heard this, I'm an Apple person. I go to the Apple store. I tell them what I need and they tell me what I should buy and I buy it. And I don't worry about the cost because there is no other alternative. I'm not looking at alternatives. And that, like you said, 34%, 32% margins, unheard of. But people are like, I don't care because this, I'm on team Apple. I'm an, I'm a member. I'm a member here. This is my thing. Now I want to, I want to go on if, if we can to Pinterest. And then of course, to, to ThoughtSpot where you are today and talk about, you know, at Pinterest, very different business model, very different platform. They're, they're a platform company, a community. What made you go there? And what were you trying to do there from a design perspective? Partly like, why did I go to Pinterest and why did I leave Apple? And for me at Apple, I'd been there for a while. Frankly, I was really tired. <laughs> and, and I was personally at the time having trouble transitioning from Apple the underdog to Apple the big dog. It was time for me to take a break. I got a call and was able to meet the co-founder, Evan Sharp, who recently left Pinterest, but the, uh, one of the co-founders of Pinterest. And I met him a couple of times. And the company was in some growing pains. They were trying to figure out how to scale the design team. There was things I had learned about design management and building teams that I thought could be useful in the company. And again, also from sort of a historical moment, this is 2014, there was kind of a, it's a very interesting scene happening in San Francisco, you know, in the South of Market area. There was, if you look back at it, there was about a two square mile area where you had Uber, Lyft, Adobe, Airbnb, Pinterest, Slack, Dropbox Twitter. might have been in there, Twitter. Like it was just, you know, as I used to say, it was the greatest concentration of design talent anywhere in the world ever, including the Renaissance in Florence. Wow. Like it was phenomenal. Like 50 miles along Highway One was the greatest concentration of creative and intellectual energy ever expressed in the history of mankind for about a 10 year period. I just thought it'd be cool to go be part of it. And I was for about a year and a half. And that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> But just a great company that Ben Silverman, the CEO, is a, is a phenomenal individual and a great leader. Personally, I think I wasn't quite as drawn to an environment where the business model was more around advertising. You know, I felt a personal draw more to have a relationship with the user. And that was important to me. So I moved on from Pinterest. And then I actually did take some time off and, you know, sort of went through this discovery process of what it was I loved about software and tech. And that was a moment when I probably could have moved out of the industry, which is what most of my colleagues have done. But then, as I said, I sort of rediscovered it. Turns out, for whatever reason, I just really like making software. It's like people like making movies or something. I just really like making software. Really, I just started looking for a job for like a couple of weeks. And then the opportunity at Pinterest, sorry, at ThoughtSpot showed up. 
And it was, again, one of those things that I thought enterprise software, bringing consumer quality UI and user experience into enterprise software is kind of the avant-garde of software design right now. And ThoughtSpot was a place was a place where I could go do that. Can you break that down for our listeners, what that means to bring the consumer approach to design to B2B, what, to enterprise software? What's going on there? The software that I use at work versus the software I use in my personal life. In most enterprise companies, they're not going to invest a lot in what we might call production values. I mean, if you look at a lot of enterprise software, it's just ugly. And I think that's partly... Because you have be- to use it. <laughs> Well, yeah, they, they kind of have a captive audience. It also turns out to go back to one of your other points. There's not enough designers in the world. So I like I, it's not like I sit around thinking that these enterprise companies are comfortable or desire to ship ugly and crappy software. They just can't hire enough designers because there's just not enough of us in the market yet. So that's that's going to... And we could talk about that more in a minute, but you know that's going to take a while to rectify. And so at a high level, a lot of enterprise software just looks ugly. It also feels like products that were built and not designed. Like it feels like, oh, you know, there was these requirements that came in and they do, they often come in from big customers and like everybody's just making all these random requests. And then you start trying to just figure out where to fit this stuff in. And within a few years, what originally maybe started out as a pretty clear product vision and something that was kind of simple and manageable becomes a completely unruly, untended garden. And it becomes very difficult to go and, and fix that in large part because you have a revenue stream built around it and somebody somewhere is attached to every little feature. It was frankly, it was a lot of what drove the paralysis around the Yahoo homepage when I was there as well. Because even though any given link on the homepage wasn't a huge amount of traffic, the traffic that came into anything from those links was huge. <laughs> you know, so every time you try to make a change to the homepage, all the other people that depended on the homepage would just seize up. So it's just sort of, you know, bureaucratic bloat or sclerosis or whatever. I was honestly surprised when you went to ThoughtSpot because you've been a consumer guy. You just sort of explained how consumer products, because consumers have more choice, because they're being forced increasingly to differentiate on design, that would seem like the place where designers would gravitate. And that's what we're seeing that, you know, you just said the hard for the enterprise software companies to find designers. And yet you chose as a challenge to go to ThoughtSpot. You said you think that enterprise software is the avant-garde for design. I know you're working on some really interesting work that ties into subscription. What is it that you're doing at ThoughtSpot? And, and what was it that excited you about taking on that challenge? Well, one was just try to transform an organization that was largely engineering-driven into one that was design-driven. You know, So trying to infuse the culture with thinking more about the user and less about the customer was an interesting challenge. Trying to figure out how to get a high amount of output from a relatively small design team is an interesting challenge. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about our design system in ways that we scale design to be wildly more productive than it might be if we just had a bunch of bodies in the seat churning stuff out. User versus customer is an interesting one in B2B because I guess the customer is the one who buys it, but the user is the one that has to log in every day and get value from it. Yeah, and I, I drive that in conversations at the company all the time. It's one of the first things I started trying to distinguish between because you know the company is naturally has a big sales component as well. And so we were always talking about, oh, well, what does the customer want? I'm like, well, the customer's like one person. <laughs> you know? and I get that the customer's important. They're also well-represented. And so are we really thinking about our user and what are the mechanisms in design reviews and what's the ways in which we're looking at the product that help us understand what the true user experience is and you know one of the big problems with all with all enterprise software and frankly all software in general is it can be really fragmented 
because a lot of companies have tended to silo different functional areas. And so if you look at a lot of products, you can kind of feel that you're being handed off from one team to the other. The classic example in e-commerce is when you go from the merchandising site into the cart and then from the cart into checkout. You know, you, I mean, you go to check it, you're like, what did I just step through the wrong door here? I just feel like I'm in the back, I feel like I'm in the basement of the restaurant all of a sudden. <laughs> um, and so, you know, just the challenge of trying to smooth that out. And how do we do that? What are the experiments we can run in the design process? What are the different ways we can talk about our deliverables and our artifacts? And so when you make this distinction of like, well, I've always seen you as a consumer guy and now you're doing enterprise. In my head, what I hear is, well, Bob, you've always made big budget superhero movies and now you're making documentaries. It's like, yeah, well, I'm still making movies. It's all the, it's all the same. So I used to record classical and now I'm recording jazz. Like, I don't know. It's all, it's all the same stuff, right? So yeah. Yeah. I, in and- my head, I don't really make that distinction. And I, I think that goes back to you know the last role I had at Apple was working on some of the software they use inside the stores that the specialists use. And that's when I realized that this whole distinction between an employee experience and a customer-facing experience is completely getting obliterated. Because the move to mobile inside stores and other situations means that the customer or the user, the customer can often look over the shoulder of the employee while they're doing stuff. And so those screens, you know, they have self, you know, they have a, a mobile-based checkout in Apple stores and Nike stores, lots of other places have, you know, handheld checkout systems that they use to take your money. And that's a shared experience between the customer and the employee. That's very interesting. So the customer looking over your shoulder means that it's part of the experience for that customer. And so it has to be aligned with the overall customer experience. And then you're also making this point, which I think is really important, that in some ways the employee is like, a, I mean, I, maybe I'm, I'm drawing this out, the, the, the customer, the employee is like a customer in the big organization. So the customer, my company, buys some piece of software, some enterprise system, and I, as a user, first of all, I'm forced to use it, but if I don't use it, if I ignore it and continue using my spreadsheet or my notes on a piece of paper instead of using the product that my boss wants me to use, now that more and more businesses are B2B subscriptions rather than enterprise licenses, there's a chance that the company might cancel the subscription if no one's using it. And I think oh, as yeah. organizations move to SaaS, that user is becoming a customer or is becoming more important. When you say customer, you're not just thinking of the buyer you're thinking of all the people that are going to have input on how long somebody not just buys it, but how long they stay. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get to that point in just a second. I, I just want to go back and underscore something, which is if you go on LinkedIn, you'll see many companies touting how they're one of the best places to work for. And they'll say that because we're a great place to work, it means that our employees are have more emotional and cognitive energy to spend time with the customers, right? Like Container Store, for example, they take a lot of pride and their associates being happy employees, because that means their associates have more energy to spend on their customers. Well, if you really believe that, isn't it important that the software tools that your employees are using are also high quality? Isn't that how you as a company illustrate to your staff that you care about them? I mean, that's why Target, for example, or Best Buy has enormous design teams and engineering teams creating internal tools because they matter, right? They really matter. High quality software is how the creators of those products express the fact that they care about the person using them. You use tools all the time. You use tools, you have experiences, whatever, where you can feel the, I hate to overplay it, but you can feel the soul of the creator coming through. It's like really touches you. You can feel it. And when you use high quality, well-crafted software, you can feel the creators coming through. And then other stuff you use and you're like, well, not really. You know, <laughs> I, just, yeah. I just don't feel yeah. that. And it's a real difference in the human connection 
it starts to create that relationship bond that is at the heart of kind of really sustained forever transactions, subscriptions. And I mean, the things that you talk about all have to do with shifting to a relationship-based model. Yeah. And if you can't feel somebody on the other side of the software, you know, if you can't feel the creator on the other side, it's hard to have a relationship with it. Yeah, for sure. And I know at ThoughtSpot, I mean, you came in to become a design-centered organization and also to move the organization to, a, you know, or support a SaaS model. Can you talk about some of the things that you changed or that had to change as you move to this more user-centric, relationship-driven culture and set of business processes in an organization that was that was already successful, but wanted to move in this direction? Yeah. So let's go back to your other point about the shift when you go from a kind of a one-time purchase to a subscription model. And ThoughtSpot is in the middle of moving to a SaaS model with some sort of subscription-like stuff hanging around it. And so we're early days in this thing. But you know, a big challenge for us now is how does the product market itself to the user, right? Like in a traditional I love that. How does the yeah, product market, market itself, itself to the yeah. user? Yeah. The product has to constantly tell the user what it is and why it's valuable. And for example, it means you have to build these mechanisms where you are where the product is sort of monitoring for any given user which features have they engaged with, how are they engaging with it. And then provide notifications, learning material, emails to try to keep them going. And Adobe does an amazing job of this. Asana does a really great job of this, for example. There's a lot of technology infrastructure that has to be built. And it has to be built on sort of a per-company basis to really enable that. But it's the secret sauce of how you get these products to keep people engaged. In terms of making this transition from a one-time purchase to a subscription and, and having the product constantly prove its value, you know, Adobe is just a, a fantastic case study. When they went from every 18 months, they come out with a new version of Photoshop and every designer had to decide whether or not they're going to plunk down 450 bucks. Now, every designer is sitting around going, well, I don't know, do I really want to spend another, whatever it is now, 30, 40 bucks for the Adobe suite this month? Because they see those charges on their credit card every month. That's a really different psychology. And so since that time, Adobe's done stuff where they bought Behance. They've built a whole huge community. Behance, been- yeah, being their, their community for designers mm-hmm. and for creators. Yeah. Right. Because they now, I think what's beautiful about it, amazing, and, and, and Shantanu over there has done a phenomenal job, Shantanu and Scott, Scott Belsky and others. Adobe's not about making software. It's about empowering creatives to do the best work they can. And Adobe's role in that is through their software products. And not to go back to Apple, but you know, it, it harkens back to the founding concept of Apple, which is a belief that uh, personal computing can have a transformative effect on the lives of individuals. And Apple happens to make products to make that happen, but it's transformative effect on the lives of individuals. <laughs> That's a really powerful idea. And I, and I think it's actually at the heart of what Adobe's doing, like what we're trying to do at ThoughtSpot. We're trying to democratize data. Again, it's, it's trying to put these powerful data analytics tools into the hands of individuals so that they can make better decisions in the context of their business, which helps their company, helps them, makes empowers them. It's a real different mindset from oh, we've built this software tool and we're trying to tweak it around the edges so people will give us another... They'll look at more ads it'll give us another five bucks a month. Like That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to help people be more successful in life. And we will benefit because of that. We will benefit in an economic way. But you know, honestly, the world will benefit from that as well. <laughs> you know, That's just putting goodness out in the, into the world. Yeah. So with, with ThoughtSpot moving to this kind of user-centric model... Are there elements, let's say, from Adobe or from you know what you've described with Adobe or what Apple has done 
that you're kind of drawing on to optimize this product to be able to market itself, the product to market itself, the way that you've described with these other great, great. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're in relatively early days here, so I can't talk about any specific projects. I can tell you that one of the things we spend a lot of time doing is instead of looking at competitive products, we try to look at adjacent products. For example, choosing to buy a business analytics product is a pretty, that's a pretty big decision. It's expensive. You're sort of making a commitment. You have to invest some learning to really figure out how to use it. So we could go look at our direct competitors, but then we might be falling victim to mimicry and we would just be operating in that vein. So right now we're doing some research where we're trying to look at what we call adjacent products. And one of those would be like professional SLRs. What's the process of buying an expensive digital camera? Because the whole process of where you explore a camera and you compare them and it's a long-term purchase and you have to figure out how to how to actually operate the camera. So there's a learning curve. Like what's that whole emotional journey for a user feel like? And we're trying to see if there's things that we can learn from what Nikon's done and what Canon's done, et cetera. We're also looking at cars because a car purchase is also a big commitment. It doesn't necessarily have the learning curve that some other things have. But we actually think from a from a research perspective, there's probably more original ideas for us to take away and learn about by looking at these adjacent experiences rather than looking at our direct competitors. Yeah, fascinating. I could obviously talk to you all day, but I want to save some time to close out the speed round. Are you up for doing <laughs> doing a little speed of round? Of course, I love the speed round. <laughs> Let's go. Let's play. Okay, first subscription you ever had. Oh my goodness, Boys Life Magazine. Boys Life Magazine. Your favorite subscription today as a user, as a subscriber. The Waking Up app by Sam Harris. <laughs> Great. And your favorite subscription as a designer? Oh, Figma. Yeah. What is it? Figma? Figma. Figma. Yeah. Figma is a design tool. With all due respect to my friends at Adobe, Figma is the new kid on the block and they're not even that new anymore. Figma is the design tool for software design that's being used in every organization you can name. Yeah. It's awesome. phenomenal. Yeah. They're doing an amazing job. I'll also put in a quick pitch for a product called Pitch, which is one of the best design pieces of software I've seen in a long time. Pitch is a collaborative presentation application. So we compete with like a Google Slides or Apple Keynote, Microsoft PowerPoint, beats the pants off of all those. So hmm. pitch.com, go check it pitch. out. Com. Best business book you've read this year. I know you're a huge reader. Ooh. This year, that kind of limits it. I mean, generally, I'd say Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull. You know, I just finished The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And I actually loved that. That changed how I think about a lot of stuff. I'll go with that. We'll put- We'll put both into the show notes. Um, doesn't matter. The book that you read before December of, of 2020 is also going to be included. And a piece of software that you're especially proud of that you had a part in creating. You know, there's a lot of different things in there. I was super proud of the first thing I worked on. So Clarisworks 1.0 came out back in 1990-91. I'm still super proud of the menu structure I came up with that lasted for, I think, almost 12 years. Yahoo Answers was a phenomenal product and I was proud to be a part of that. And then at Apple, we redesigned every aspect of the online store. I was super proud of that store. I was proud of my work. I was proud of what the team did. And I was super proud of the the initial release of the Apple Store app. Those were all great. And we're doing some great work at ThoughtSpot. It hasn't quite, not everything quite made it out yet, but I'm very pleased to say that I'm still doing the best work of my career. And I hope to keep that up for a while still. Wow. Well, you're a real inspiration to me the way that you look at the world and continue to challenge yourself and learn and grow and take on new big opportunities. I'm thrilled that you're here on the show, on the Subscription Stories podcast, and I look forward to having you back again soon. Awesome. Well, thanks again for the time, Robbie. It's been great to spend time with you. See you soon. That was product designer Bob Baxley. 
Bob's the SVP Design at ThoughtSpot and the co-host of the Reconsidering Podcast. For more about Bob and about ThoughtSpot, go to ThoughtSpot.com. And for more about subscription stories, as well as the transcript of my conversation with Bob, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Bob and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support. And thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.